Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. All right. Let's find out what those wacky kids in jolly old England are up to. Dealing with Count Dracula. But first, let's have a sip of this reading tea. Freshly made. Mmm. Mmm. Oh, damn. That's really good tea. That's like better than the average tea. And if I do say so myself, I make pretty good tea, so... Mm. Definitely. Okay. Well, let's get right back into it. Outside the Harker's door, we paused. Art and Quincy held back, and the latter said, Should we disturb her? We must, said Van Helsing grimly. If the door be locked, I shall break it in. May not frighten her terribly. It is unusual to break into a lady's room. Van Helsing said solemnly, You were always right, but this is life and death. All chambers are alike to the doctor, and even were they not, they are all as one to me tonight. Friend John, when I turn the handle, if the door does not open, do you put your shoulder down and shove? And you too, my friends. Now. He turned the handle as he spoke, but the door did not yield. We threw ourselves against it. With a crash, it burst open, and we almost fell headlong into the room. The professor did actually fall, and I saw across him as he gathered himself up from hands and knees. What I saw appalled me. I felt my hair rise like bristles on the back of my neck, and my heart seemed to stand still. The moonlight was so bright that through the thick yellow blind the room was light enough to see. On the bed beside the window lay Jonathan Harker, his face flushed and breathing heavily as though in a stupor. Kneeling on the near edge of the bed, facing outwards, was the white-clad figure of his wife. By her side stood a tall, thin man, clad in black. His face was turned from us, but the instant we saw, we all recognized the Count. In every way, even to the scar on his forehead... With his left hand, he held both Mrs. Harker's hands, keeping them away with her arms at full tension. His right hand gripped her by the back of the neck, forcing her face down on his bosom. Her white nightdress was smeared with blood, and a thin stream trickled down the man's bare breast, which was shown by his torn-open dress. The attitude of the two had a terrible resemblance to a child forcing a kitten's nose into a saucer of milk to compel it to drink. As we burst into the room, the Count turned his face, and the hellish look that I had heard described seemed to leap into it. 
His eyes flamed red with devilish passion. The great nostrils of the white aquiline nose opened wide and quivered at the edge, and the white, sharp teeth behind the full lips of the blood-dripping mouth champed together like those of a wild beast. With a wrench which threw his victim back upon the bed as though hurled from a height, he turned and sprang at us. But by this time the professor had gained his feet and was holding towards him the envelope which contained the sacred wafer. The count suddenly stopped, just as poor Lucy had done outside the tomb, and cowered back. Further and further back he cowered, as we, lifting our crucifixes, advanced. The moonlight suddenly failed as a great black cloud sailed across the sky, and when the gaslight sprang up under Quincy's match, we saw nothing but a faint vapor. This, as we looked, trailed under the door, which, with the recoil from its bursting open, had swung back to its old position. Van Helsing, Art, and I moved forward to Mrs. Harker, who by this time had drawn her breath, and with it had given a scream so wild, so ear-piercing, so despairing, that it seems to me now that it will ring in my ears to my dying day. For a few seconds she lay in her helpless attitude in disarray. Her face was ghastly, with a pallor which was accentuated by the blood which smeared her lips and cheeks and chin. From her throat trickled a thin stream of blood. Her eyes were mad with terror. Then she put before her face her poor crushed hands, which bore on their whiteness the red mark of the Count's terrible grip, and from behind them came a low, desolate wail, which made the terrible scream seem only the quick expression of an endless grief. Van Helsing stepped forward and drew the coverlet gently over her body, whilst Art, after looking at her face for an instant despairingly, ran out of the room. Van Helsing whispered to me, Jonathan is in a stupor such as we know the vampire can produce. We can do nothing with poor Madame Mina for a few moments till she recovers herself. I must wake him. He dipped the end of a towel in cold water and with it began to flick him on the face, his wife all the while holding her face between her hands and sobbing in a way that was heartbreaking to hear. I raised the blind and looked out of the window. There was much moonshine and as I looked I could see Quincy Morris run across the lawn and hide himself in the shadow of a great yew tree. It puzzled me to think why he was doing this, but at the instant I heard Harker's quick exclamation as he woke to partial consciousness and turned to the bed. On his face, as there might well be, was a look of wild amazement. He seemed dazed for a few seconds, and then full consciousness seemed to burst upon him all at once, and he started up. His wife was aroused by the quick movement, and turned to him with her arms stretched out, as though to embrace him. Instantly, however, she drew them in again, and putting her elbows together, held her hands before her face and shuddered till the bed beneath her shook. "'In God's name, what does this mean?' Harker cried out. "'Dr. Seward, Dr. Van Helsing, what is it? What has happened? What is wrong? Mina, dear, what is it? What does that blood mean? My God, my God, has it come to this?' And raising himself to his knees, he beat his hands wildly together. "'Good God, help us! Help her! Oh, help her!' With a quick movement, he jumped from bed and began to pull on his clothes, all the man in him awake at the need for instant exertion. "'What has happened? Tell me all about it,' he cried without pausing. "'Dr. Van Helsing, you love me, now, I know. Oh, do something to save her. It cannot have gone too far yet. Guard her while I look for him.' 
His wife, through her terror and horror and distress, saw some sure danger to him. Instantly forgetting her own grief, she seized hold of him and cried out, No, no, Jonathan, you must not leave me. I've suffered enough tonight, God knows, without the dread of his harming you. You must stay with me. Stay with these friends who will watch over you. Her expression became frantic as she spoke, and he yielding to her, she pulled him down sitting on the bedside and clung to him fiercely. Van Helsing and I tried to calm them both. The professor held up his little golden crucifix and said with wonderful calmness, Do not fear, my dear. We are here, and whilst this is close to you, no foul thing can approach. You are safe for tonight, and we must be calm and take counsel together. She shuddered and was silent, holding down her head on her husband's breast. When she raised it, his white nightrobe was stained with blood where her lips had touched, and where the thin open wound on her neck had sent forth drops. The instant she saw it, she drew back with a low wail and whispered amidst choking sobs, Unclean! Unclean! I must touch him or kiss him no more. Oh, that it should be that it is I who am now his worst enemy, and whom he may have most cause to fear! To this he spoke out resolutely, Nonsense, Mina! It is a shame to me to hear such a word. I would not hear it of you, and I shall not hear it from you. May God judge me by my desert. May God judge me by my deserts. Okay, I guess it is what I thought it said. May God judge me by my deserts and punish me with more bitter suffering than even this hour, if by any act or will of mine anything ever come between us. He put out his arms and folded her to his breast, and for a while she lay there sobbing. He looked at us over her bowed head with eyes that blinked damply above his quivering nostrils. His mouth was set as steel. After a while, her sobs became less frequent and more faint. And then he said to me, speaking with a studied calmness which I felt tried his nervous power to the utmost, And now, Dr. Seward, tell me all about it. Too well I know the broad fact. Tell me all that has been. I told him exactly what had happened, and he listened with seeming impassiveness, but his nostrils twitched and his eyes blazed as I told how the ruthless hands of the Count had held his wife in that terrible and horrid position, with her mouth to the open wound in his breast. It interested me, even at that moment, to see that whilst the face of white-set passion worked convulsively over the bowed head, the hands tenderly and lovingly stroked the ruffled hair. Just as I had finished, Quincy and Godalming knocked at the door. They entered in obedience to our summons. Van Helsing looked at me questioningly. I understood him to mean if we were to take advantage of their coming to divert, if possible, the thoughts of the unhappy husband and wife from each other and from themselves. So on nodding acquiescence to him, he asked them what they had seen or done. To which Lord Godalming answered, I could not see him anywhere in the passage or in any of our rooms. I looked in the study, but though he had been there, he had gone. He had, however, he stopped suddenly, looking at the poor drooping figure on the bed. Van Helsing said gravely, Go on, friend Arthur. We won't hear no more concealments. Our hope now is knowing all. Tell freely. So Art went on. He had been there, and though it could only have been for a few seconds, he made rare hay of the place. All the manuscript had been burned, and the blue flames were flickering amongst the white ashes. The cylinders of your phonograph, too, were thrown on the fire, and the wax had helped the flames. Here I interrupted. Thank God there is another copy in the safe. 
His face lit for a moment, but fell again as he went on. I ran downstairs then, but could see no sign of him. I looked into Renfield's room, but there was no trace there, except... Again, he paused. Go on, said Harker hoarsely. So he bowed his head, and moistening his lips with his tongue, added, except that the poor fellow is dead. Mrs. Harker raised her head, looking from one to the other of us. She said solemnly, God's will be done. I could not but feel that Art was keeping back something, but as I took it that it was with a purpose, I said nothing. Van Helsing turned to Morris and asked, And you, friend Quincy, have you any to tell? A little, he answered. It may be much eventually, but at present I can't say. I thought it well to know, if possible, where the Count would go when he left the house. I did not see him, but I saw a bat rise from Renfield's window and flap westward. I expected to see him in some shape go back to Carfax, but he evidently sought some other lair. He will not be back tonight, for the sky is reddening in the east, and the dawn is close. We must work tomorrow. He said the latter words through his shut teeth. For a space of perhaps a couple of minutes there was silence, and I could fancy that I could hear the sound of our hearts beating. Then Van Helsing said, placing his hand very tenderly on Mrs. Harker's head, And now, Madam Mina, poor, dear, dear Madam Mina, tell us exactly what happened. God knows that I do not want that you be pained, but it is need that we know all. For now, more than ever, has all work to be done quick and sharp and in deadly earnest. The day is close to us that must end all, if it may be so. And now is the chance that we may live and learn. That seems like a good place to stop this episode. Like, I love this novel, and I think it just stinks that they're all so dumb about what's happening to Mina. And I don't know, maybe it's the gender roles and beliefs and practices of that time coming through. And maybe it's that, you know, as sometimes happens in plenty of stories today, characters just needed to be dumb for a little while for the story to advance the way that the creator of it wanted it to. I don't know. But it always breaks my heart that these people are trying so hard and they're just getting snookered right there. Anyway, thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org.